Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Crypto Entrepreneurs Podcast with your host, Charles. Enjoy. What is up, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Crypto Entrepreneurs Podcast. As always, it's your host, Charles, and today we've got an interesting one for you. So today I'm going to be sitting down with Nostradamist with a T at the end to discuss the similarities that we are seeing in the financial world today to the 10 years prior to the Great Depression. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that is very similar uh, and why he thinks we are headed into another depression. But before we get into all of that, I do just want to take a quick second to give a shout out to our sponsors. They've been with me for three months now and I am on the moon about it. The first is Roundly X. You guys know about them. If you're new, I highly suggest checking them out. How it works is you link your credit and debit cards and with each purchase, they round it up to the next dollar and invest that spare change into Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency of your choosing. It's very easy, free, sorry, stress-free, uh, and hands-off. Uh, you know, it is just a great way to dollar cost average and accumulate over time. If that's interesting at all to you, there's a link in the description below. Head on over, link your cards, and get started today. The second is CoinFlex. These guys are a newer exchange, so this one's for the traders out there. And they've got some pretty cool features. The first is that, again, like I've said every time, they have some of the lowest, if not the lowest fees in the market, depending on how much flex you own. On top of that, you can actually stake your flex for $10 USDT per thousand flex per month. I just got my third payout. It has been fantastic. And uh, they've got a bunch of other cool features. Uh, one of which is that you can just click into the order book to limit in and out of trades. It's very great for scalpers. Uh, so if you're still trading crypto, which might not be that many of you, to be honest with you, just to, you know, how I've seen things on Twitter recently, uh, head on over, create an account, check out the site. Uh, there's a link in the description below. Now that we've gotten all of that taken care of, let's get back to Nostradamus and let's get in with it. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Good. Perfect. And let's jump into it. Yep. Let's do it. All right. Perfect. Uh, so I'm here with Nostrad Nostradamus. Sorry. Uh, and it's funny. We actually recorded this episode, I would say two, three weeks ago or something like that. And I actually fucked up I, the audio. Right. Right when that first like dip happened in the stock market, like Feb February twenty fourth, I want to say. Yeah, so I it was about two weeks ago, uh, and we covered a lot. We're gonna get into it again, just because I screwed everything up. Uh, but your timing on all of this was pretty perfect. Uh, so I do want to get into it, but before we get into you know the Great Depression, a new financial crash potentially, a new recession. Uh, can you just give us a little bit of background on yourself and what you were doing before you found crypto? Yeah, sure. So um, for me, my story, you know, first off, like my story getting into crypto, I got in pretty late. So I got in at the peak in 2017. I bought my first Bitcoin at 15,000. I'll never forget that day. Um, 
and that, that was where I really started to one of my roommates, he kind of sold me on the idea of what Bitcoin was and fundamentally what it stood for. And I had already done a lot of research on kind of like the issues in fiat currencies and the monetary system. So I really became attracted to the whole, you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency world just because of my relation through economics and kind of understanding the flaws we have in our system today. But, you know, before that, I was um, I was investing in stocks. I was in, I'm from the Bay Area, so I was buying a lot of tech stocks. I got lucky there, too. You know, um, I got into tech stocks in 2010. I bought my first stocks, and I held them all the way up till 2018. In between that time, I went to school. I was doing real estate development with a developer flipping homes. I uh, started a business, you know, that didn't go too well. But, you know, I sold all my... I sold all my holdings in 2018 because I sold all my shares in 2018 because I really got into uh, gold, silver, and really uh, Bitcoin. That's when I really started going heavy into Bitcoin. So I felt like we were topping in the stock market. We were starting to have a dip and I just figured it was the time to cash out and started buying gold, silver and went really heavy into crypto. And that happened to be, the, um, the bottom. And I had taught myself throughout that bear market technical analysis because after buying at 15, the price went down so much and I realized I made a mistake. So I knew the long-term, the macro trend was extremely bullish for Bitcoin. So I taught myself TA and I promised myself that I was going to learn how to trade it. So, you know, figured out, learned about the moving averages saw the cycle, studied the cycle and realized that, Hey, you know, this could be a great time to get into Bitcoin. So yeah, you know, that's really how I got here. Yeah. You got, you got uh, a very, I wouldn't say lucky, but you, you timed it pretty perfect on the, uh, you know, equity side of things. You're getting in pretty much at the bottom in 2010, you wrote it up to 2018. And I remember before we talked, it had, you know, it hadn't fallen off a cliff. We're now down 30%. Uh, and I talked about it and I was like, Hey, do you think maybe you sold a little bit early? I remember you saying, yeah, maybe a little bit, but I mean, if we're looking at price now, it's looking like, you know, you sold at or near the top. Um, yeah, and then yeah. unfortunately I do remember you saying that you bought Bitcoin, uh, pretty much at the top. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, the timing was perfect on stocks, not as great on crypto, uh, but you're you're here now. You're talking about it, so that means you've kind of survived this whole market. You said you've learned TA, which has been wonderful. Um, congratulations to you. Uh, I do. The main point of this episode was the fact that um, you know we're kind of mirroring the times now are kind of mirroring the Great Depression. So do you yeah. think we could start yeah. talking about? Because you said you sold in 2018. That's probably when you started thinking, hey, we're probably going into another recession or depression uh and it's mirroring the great depression so can you talk to us about some of the similarities that you're seeing uh and then maybe get into how you see bitcoin playing into it all yeah yeah sure so so i i i was a big historian i i studied history extensively um before i was into bitcoin um i really understood economics and you know economic history And I started studying, I really focused in on this period in the United States 
between the early 1900s, a little bit after the industrial, both of the industrial revolutions up until about 1950, because that was the last time we saw a significant change in our monetary system. And there were so many things that happened, you know, between the world wars, the roaring twenties, the great depression. And I started seeing a lot of similarities between then and now, like uh, for instance, you know, during world war one, a lot of people don't know this, but we had something called the agricultural depression and it was extremely similar to the subprime crisis in the sense that, you know, during world war one, a lot of European farmers had to leave their farms and they had to abandon their land in order to fight the war. So that production had to come somewhere. And it's kind of like how China's producing for us now. We're buying a lot of our goods from China. We get a lot of our production from China. Well, Europe was leaning heavily on the United States and we had so much land and we had so much farm production, but even you know, with the amounts of farm production we had, it wasn't able to match the demand that the Europeans had because they had abandoned their farms. So we started seeing this crazy inflation in farming goods where, you know, everyday items that you would eat, you know, milk, eggs, corn, wheat, barley, um, any type of fruit and vegetable, meat, poultry, etc. It, it grew a hundred percent. We saw inflation of a hundred percent between 1914 and 1919. And that was very kind of similar to what we saw in the subprime crisis. So because these prices were rising so fast, it was simply we couldn't meet the demand. So we had to figure out a way to increase our output. So um, the government, what they did was they instituted this Federal Farm Loan Act. And what this was made to do was allow banks to give more loans to farmers so they can expand on their um on their businesses and increase their production in order to match uh, the demand that was needed for World War One, And a lot of these farmers started taking out these loans and leveraging their farms in order to increase the output because at the end of the day, you know, the prices were rising so fast. It was just such a hot market. It was almost like a bubble. Yeah. And, so th this yeah. is, this is very similar to the housing crash that we saw and I, you know, I wasn't old enough to be aware of what was going on, but I've gone back and kind of researched it a bit and people were right. buying homes that they couldn't afford because the assumption yep. was that your home price was just going to continue to increase and they were taking out loans they couldn't afford to pay back, which it sounds like is very similar to what's happening here. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, that's, that's really an assumption that a lot of people carry in bubbles that the growth will continue and there's no way for it to stop. And that's kind of one sign that I use to identify a bubble in the first place. So after World War One ended, um, a lot of these farmers in Europe, they went back to their old lives and they returned to their farms and the prices started to stabilize again in the United States. And because a lot of these, a lot of debt is issued based on the assumption of what the price of whatever it is you're producing is. So like, you know, for the frackers, when they were taking their loans out in the early 2010s, uh, oil was at over $100 a barrel. So when they were borrowing and getting loans to start operations for this equipment, it was under the assumption that oil was going to stay high forever. And this was kind of the same deal with them. So these farmers just wound up in crazy debt as the as the prices began to stabilize and they weren't able to pay it off. And 
a lot of farmers went broke and they had to default on their farms. A lot of them lost everything. They lost more than what they had in the first place, you know? Um, they lost everything just because they couldn't pay everything off. And with that, you know, we saw the Federal Reserves. They were instituted in the 1913s. And what happened was during the, the Federal Farm Loan Act, I don't think I mentioned this the first time, but a lot of these local national banks were kind of like a rival to the Federal Reserves and the JP Morgans and the big banks on the bigger cities on the East Coast. So a lot of them were the ones who were, in, uh, they were giving out these loans. And after the war had ended, most of these banks failed. And I think that kind of really started that stranglehold that the feds have on us now. Um, and I think that's a big problem in the world now. And looking up to the subprime crisis, you know, what was so different? You know, George W. Bush, he had the American Dream Down Payment Initiative in 2004, basically saying that every person deserves to have a home and we're gonna do whatever we can to give them the loan to get those homes. And houses in major cities, you know, they, they almost doubled from 2000 to 2007. And this was, you know, while interest rates were rising, which is something you don't see very often. And a lot of these home homeowners, just like the farmers, they couldn't pay off the debt for the houses they bought at the top for the market and they went bankrupt. And during that same time, we saw 465 banks liquidated over the next four years, I believe. And before that, we had 10 in the previous uh, 10. <laughs> so the, these are spot on similar almost, you know, it was food production versus home prices, but the way that this bubble was fueled and then the after effects are spot on exact same. So that was 10 years prior to the crash in 1929. So what yeah. what happened what happened in those 10 years and then what happened during the crash and what are we seeing now in the last I'd say it's been what now 12 years since the housing market crash? Uh yep, yep, yep. It has been. Hmm. Interestingly enough, it seems like my slide's gone away. Okay. No, yeah, this is perfect. Um, but but you know, during the, the roaring twenties, um one thing that's important to understand is, you know, right now what's carried the market has been tech. And I think a lot of people can agree on that. And back then, you know, tech today, when you think about it, people are like, it's so revolutionary, it's going to change the world. And, you know, the growth is only going to become, you know, greater and greater from here. And we're going to eventually grow at an exponential rate. But back then in the roaring 20s, you know, we saw a huge stock market run after this agricultural depression settled, kind of like after 2008. And what they had was they had a lot of technology coming in too. And you got to think about the fundamentals of what technology is made for and technology is made to make communication easier. Kind of like how we have it with the internet now. Well, we had the radio and the telephone becoming you know, widely adopted throughout the 1920s. And what this was doing was this was cutting down communication. Um, you know, the time it took to communicate to, you know, from like days, weeks, months to almost instantaneously. So this really changed, this really brought in globalization and this made globalization more possible because people could communicate with each other, even if they were in a different country or across the state. 
And this allowed them to, you know, really shorten those barriers. We had the steam engine, we had cars coming, we had electricity, we had the television. So we had a lot of like revolutionary technology. And during this time, you know, we, we had the interest rates, which were pretty low. And a lot of people were jumping into the stock market. The stock market was doing really well because of these fundamental factors and this foundation that was kind of laid out in the 20s. So a lot of people started investing into the stock market and as it, you know, grew faster and faster, it did. I think we talked about this last time. It was what in the 1920s, like a four X, five X. Yeah. Four to five X from the bottom. Uh, and right. really quickly before we go into it, just, you know, for anyone who's looking at this slide right now, what this really equates to is that businesses are able to, you know, save money, save time, be more productive, which then equates to the stock's price, which is why we saw this huge jump, this 5x over the span of 10 years. Now, before we get back into it, I do just want to take a quick second to thank our third and final sponsor for this episode and for the show as a whole, and that is Crypto.com. I've talked about them before. They're newer to me as a sponsor, but they have a ton of stuff going on. I'm just going to mention three things really quickly, uh, just because I do want to get back to the show. But the first is that they have the MCO Visa credit card. It allows you to spend your crypto and has a ton of wonderful features. Uh, I think the most important one is that you can earn up to 5% cash back, uh, which is unheard of with most cards. Uh, and not only that, uh, this used to just be a US thing. They are now shipping to the UK. So for anyone who's listening to this who's in the UK, who has been waiting to get their card, they are now shipping to the UK. Get on it today. And then lastly, not only can you spend your crypto, you can actually also earn it as well. Um, and with interest rates as low as they are, I think this is a great way to bring in some extra income on the bigger currencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, XRP. You'll earn up to 6%. And then on stable coins, you'll actually earn a whopping 12%. Uh, so go down to your bank, talk to them, see how much you can get for opening a savings account, and then compare that to the 12% you can get on stable coins. Um, so if either of these two things interests you at all, I'd say head to the link in the description below. They've got a ton of other cool things going on. Like I said, check out the entire site. Um, but now let's get back to the interview. Exactly. And, you know, as the stock market began to rise, it became a fad, just like, you know, with 2008, just like the farmers, where it was like, this is a safe investment, the prices are going up. Well, it was the same thing with stocks and people started doing margin calls, they started leveraging. And this is where we really started to see that mass speculation into the stock market, because not only was there the foundation for, hey, the technology that we have is going to be revolutionary, and it's going to change the way the world works. It was also, well, we also have mass speculation and people borrowing money and throwing it into the stock market, almost like the stock buybacks we're seeing today. And, and that was really what sparked that 1920s stock market run. And today, when we really think about it, well, the internet's what's revolutionizing the world. We have computers, we have smartphones, which are essentially computers in our phone, in our hand. And 
that's changing the way we communicate and interact. Like, you know, you go out and you look, you observe what people are doing. Most people are on their phone. It's just the way that we interact now. We have blockchain technologies, which are eventually going to revolutionize the way the internet works and how companies function. It's going to allow for less third parties, more automation. It's going to allow for decentralization. So companies like, you know, these big tech companies that really led the way, like Google, YouTube, uh, Facebook, it's going to allow us to take that power back away from them and put it back into our hands unless they begin adopting to this technology sooner. So that's, you know, another question in itself. And, you know, all of this is really leading up to AI because blockchain is integrated with AI. You need computers and smartphones and machine learning and data science um, to really have this artificial intelligence work. And we've collected more data than we ever have in the past, like four years than we have in the history of Earth through the history of humanity Um, mind-boggling yeah and and that's why we've probably seen such mass speculation into tech stocks and a lot of that hype has been through they've made amazing strides throughout the last 10 years 20 years yeah i was gonna say it's not only speculation it is true advancements in technology that have made the world more efficient, made businesses more efficient, made them more profitable, very similar to what we saw in the 20s. So these these parallels, they, they're continuing to show up here. Yeah, and um, I think one thing that that's important to kind of understand is, you know, these, these bubbles, people tend to price them in much earlier than when the technology is actually ready to be implemented and rolled out into real life and have real life application. Like we don't really have real life application for blockchains. We don't really have real life application for AI yet. We do have machine learning and intelligent algorithms that could think and make decisions for themselves, but we're still like pretty far away from seeing all this rolled out into everyday society. And I think until that happens, you know, these bubbles, people understand the big picture, but they also, overestimate how fast this could get done or they underestimate how long it really takes and i think that's what leads to bubbles beforehand and things cool off and then they kind of jump off again when they're really ready very similar to tech stocks and internet stocks in the early 2000s when we saw that crash you know everything had internet in its name every company had internet they ipo'd they sold way too much they were way overvalued uh, and then eventually you do see this crash when the technology doesn't catch up to people's expectations. Exactly. That's exactly it. Okay, so now we've gotten up, we've gotten the lead up. We got the, the crash 10 years before. We got the lead up to it. Now can we go on to the actual, this slide right here, the Great Depression and then yeah, the potential so, next one? Yeah, so, um, you know, the Great Depression was really in cause to this run-up we had in stocks and because of the leverage and the amount of liquidity that, that was in the system at the time. And once the stock market crashed, this led to a kind of a ripple effect towards the rest of the economy. So it was just, we saw massive inflation in stocks and you know the price of like many goods because production was just so high and efficient. Um, And then we got to the point where we hit a deflationary period because 
there's two ways you go when something's growing really fast. You either hyperinflate or you deflate. And for the Great Depression, it was it was a deflationary crisis where prices had to come down and we we're over leveraged and people had to default. And during this time, uh, it's kind of important to understand that Great Britain suffered extensively just as much. And why Great Britain so important was because they were the global reserve currency. They were essentially the king dollar of the 1930s. They owned, because we were on a gold standard, they owned most of the gold reserves. They held most of them in banks up until World War One, where people really started to send this gold over to New York because they felt like there was a lot of instability with the wars going on. And Britain was, you know, they were starting to see the failure of their own monetary system. Um, they were on the gold standard, but they started taking the they took their, um, they went off the gold standard during the war because they had to print more money and they had to fund their war somehow. So the way for them to do it was to go off the gold standard, which was really the beginning of the end for them. And, you know, bringing that back to today, you know, China starting to begin a huge credit like crisis and a depression like crisis, like they, they built this fake economy for so many years. And, you know, if you read Chinese history, what's interesting is a lot of these powers that come and go into China, the reason they're overthrown is because unemployment come, becomes so high and people become dissatisfied and they eventually rebel against the, the leadership that's there. And we kind of saw the same thing happening in China where they had been expanding for so long and building these, you've heard these stories of building these fake empty homes and, you know, they were doing these railway projects, they were doing infrastructure projects in Africa. And now they've gotten to the point where, you know, they were buying houses all over the world in a lot of major cities. And we saw that over the last 10 years where most of the buyers in big cities like Sydney, Vancouver, Toronto, Bay Area, Seattle, um, Singapore like they were Chinese buyers and they were buying everything in cash so we saw how much they were expanding but now we're beginning to see you know China implement capital controls and now they're having bank runs and they went into a credit crisis and now you know with this COVID, vi this COVID virus and you know the Hong Kong protests that were going on they're having a lot of issues and they seem to be going into a very deflationary like period kind of like the U.S. did beforehand and you know, it's funny because this next slide I put is U.S. next because before when we recorded this, we the market was at all-time highs. And yeah, everything was looking great. There were absolutely no signs of the market going down. But, you know, my whole thesis was that if this happens in China because they were, you know, producing so much and they created so much output for the rest of the world, that would cause a ripple effect along the most of the world, even though U.S. is a strong economy. You know, it was bound to hit us, too. And it just so happens that coronavirus seemed to be the trigger that brought us down. And yeah, what I think is going to happen in the U.S., because we didn't really get to talk about this too much because we were like, hey, we don't know if the U.S. is going to go down or not. Yeah, but now yeah, it's yeah. pretty apparent. But I think what we're going to start looking at is we're going to have a liquidity crisis because, you know, they're pumping all this money into the system. The dollar does a lot of dollar denominated debt all around the world. So, you know, for, for you people who think the dollar is going to fail, I uh, strongly disagree with that. And that's, uh, 
And, you know, people who come into Bitcoin, they're under that impression that the dollar is going to fail. And I'm under that impression, too, that eventually they'll devalue the dollar and it'll be worthless. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, like even looking at let's just talk about this last, you know, the crash that we've had over the last few months. Um, what asset was the strongest? It was the dollar. Uh, we had bond sell off, gold sell off, silver sell off. We had Bitcoin sell off. We had stock sell off. Treasury yields went down. You know, people who had got bonds beforehand, they were able to sell them at amazing premiums. So, you know, it's cash is king and king dollar is here because there's such a shortage of dollars around the world. And I think we're getting to the point where we're going to have this liquidity crisis. And I think that does really set up for the fundamentals of Bitcoin to have a amazing run. And I remember when we talked about it before, I was hugely bullish on Bitcoin and I was talking about, hey, we're going to 50,000, 100,000, 330,000. Mind you, this was in February, we were talking about this. And about two weeks after we had recorded this, I'd become completely bearish on Bitcoin because of you know, what I was seeing in the market. And I think we're seeing a deflationary crisis where asset prices are going to have to come down and they're trying to devalue the dollar. They've been trying to do it since, you know, really the eighties and they haven't been able to do that. Yeah. I think uh, I, I, think I actually remember you saying that because I think we were up at around 10 K or so when we talked and you said, if we go below 8K, you're flipping. We're about eight, eight and a half, nine, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. You said, you, you said if you, if we were anywhere under eight, uh, you'd be extremely bearish. And then right. as we saw, things kind of took a dump and we dropped to high threes, mid threes, I think was the lowest it got to. Yeah. Great. So it, it has been wild. Um, but sorry to interrupt there. Um, yeah, no I, worries. I believe this is a new slide. I don't know if we, we spoke yeah, about we this one last time. Yeah, we did go through this and I kind of went over this in the last slide as I was explaining it. Well, yeah. We're seeing a transition between two supreme powers, and it was back then it was the U.S. becoming a powerhouse, overthrowing Great Britain. And, you know, Great Britain, they were – and I actually have it wrong on the slide because I actually did a little more digging into it after we uh, recorded this. And, you know, really it was after World War One that Great Britain went off the gold standard to fund the war. And I was under the impression that it first started in the late 1920s. So I kind of had my facts wrong. So it really took 25 years for Great Britain to lose supremacy or for the pound to lose the global reserve status to the U.S. And it took two world wars to do that, you know. So the question is now, you know, is China slowly challenging the U.S. as the supreme country? And I think long term, yes. But I also think this transition takes many, many, many years. And we're barely starting to see the demise of the dollar. And usually before this demise, we're going to see the currency get very strong before they're able to devalue it. And by the time they're able to devalue it, they're not going to be able to kind of control the currency there. And I think that's where we get that runaway inflation. There we I go. think we are years away from that. So, so you know, mean, we could be many years away from that or a block, a black swan event away from that. So, well, so I, I like what you're saying about the fact that it could be many years. I feel yeah. like a lot of people in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency community, uh, they say they like to think long term, but then they're focused on the day to day way too much. Um, like a lot of people are talking right. about, yeah, I posted about it today, you know, the fact that. Oh, you know, the stock market's down today. Precious metals are down today. 
Bitcoin's up a little bit or flat today or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, that's one day. You know, it takes 10 to 20 years for monetary systems to change. Uh, So I I do appreciate that you're kind of keeping it realistic in the fact that you say 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Carl the Moon actually tweeted something today and I just have to respond back because he said that I think it was exactly what you were saying. He was like, hey, you know, everything's down today. Bitcoin is up 3%. And I was like, hey, man, so how far is it down since like we started selling off? Yeah. I was like, 40, 50%. I was like, because now it's the worst performing asset and it's really perspective, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to be level headed when you love something and you're emotionally attached. And that was one thing I learned with technical analysis because I was a fundamentalist for so long. And had I been a fundamentalist and not understood technicals, I would probably still be massively bullish on Bitcoin. Okay. Um, So, so you're saying that you're not at the moment, Uh, is it safe to assume that if the market continues to decline that you see Bitcoin going much lower. Yeah. And, and I could actually get into that um, in just a second. I actually want to quickly go over this part, this slide, because there were a lot of other similarities that we saw between these two time periods that I feel a lot of us should think about. Um, Like the income inequalities at the highest levels between these two periods, like uh, in the 1930s. And now we saw the very rich, the elites were on one end of the spectrum and there was like the middle class, the lower class, they were all the way down. Like that that disparity was so high and that creates a polarity in political groups. So, you know, you think about the world today, like what are we seeing? We see Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Why are people so split between two different parties? Why did, you know, Italy, they went to a almost nationalist type political parties political system now where they're on the brink of leaving the EU. We saw Great Britain do the same thing we're seeing. And in opposition to those parties, we're seeing a lot of socialism. So why do people, you know, why do we have that polarity in the first place? Well, you know, the answer is very simple. There's a huge issue in the world that needs to be addressed. And, you know, um, the interest rates were at the lowest during these two periods and why the interest rates are so important is because you know liquidity and credit when interest rates are high it gets harder to get a loan and during these two times there was easy access to money very simply put and it was so easy to get money that you could borrow it you could throw it into stocks you could throw into houses you could throw into businesses and as these interest rates rise or as we begin to see issues like deflationary environments um credit contracts um, very, very rapidly to the point where it becomes hard to get loans. And you you can kind of understand the ripple effect it has on businesses and everyday people who don't have access to the credit they once had, like there's no incentive to spend. And, you know, like we have the perpetual wars. We had World War One. So War really, II. sorry, really quick on the interest rates, because the Fed just dropped the rate again. We are at the lowest we've seen in... I don't know how long. Uh, it looks like we may be heading right. into negative rates. Um, so you know, this is this what this is meant to do is it's meant to allow businesses to take out cheap debt to continue to grow. Uh, why is it that you? Why why do you think that we are not seeing that right now? 
Well, I, I think like when you when you really think about interest rates and, you know, rising and decreasing interest rates, it's important to understand like, hey, for example, the 1970s, we had interest rates rising because it was the only way to tame inflation. The only reason you would increase interest rates is because your growth is so fast that you have to tame it somehow by raising the rates up to the point where people have to think about whether they want to spend or whether they want to hold their money at the end of the day. Because when the rates are high, you're getting a high return on your money. But if the rates of like all other goods are rising just as fast, maybe that's incentive. That's inflation, right? Yes. So they, there, there has to be like that middle ground between, hey, how high can we raise the rates to the point where people are incentivized to save but also we won't have inflation and vice versa, you know, why have rates been decreasing for so long? Well, it's because they've been trying to stimulate an economy by giving cheap money and cheap liquidity. So people, so we could stimulate economic growth because the truth of the matter is no matter how fast housing is rising, no matter how fast the stock market's rising, real growth hasn't been rising for a long time. I believe since 2007, 2008, uh, real growth. There's a lot of data, even on the you know Federal Reserve's page. It's right there in the open, which is, which blows my fucking mind that it's right in front of us and we don't see it. But interest rates falling is really the way. I mean, they're trying to incentivize you to spend your money. They're like, hey, there's no rate to borrow money. Go do this. Go invest in a business. Go buy a house. Go do whatever it is you want. Like you're not incentivized to save if you're not getting any return on your cash. So you know that that for me it's. I look at it from a very simple perspective and it, it puts, I look at it from a very simple view and a very simple logic and it puts everything into perspective for me. Like, Hey, you know, they've been printing money for so long and pushing asset prices up. And now what we're seeing is such a hard sell off. And what did they do? They lowered interest rates and they put more money into the system. They're like, Hey, we got to pump the system back up. So I think like, you know, that, there's a there's a very you know a lot of people misunderstand how interest rates work and i think if you understand how interest rates work you understand how the world works because you know in turkey interest rates are rising because they have inflation in japan they've been dropping interest rates going into negative rates because of deflation so i think that's like very simple but a lot of people don't seem to grasp it where they think that you know, interest rates could rise overnight. Well, you know, in the 1950s, you know, after they hit historical lows, it took 15, 20 years for the rates to start rising. They kind of hovered around zero. They consolidated before inflation started to pick up. So, so, so I understand all of that, but I'm just asking, you know, do you, why, why do you think there hasn't been an effect on the market with these lowered rates? Because normally it's expected that, you know, stocks will continue to rise. You, you lower rates, you know, people can borrow more cheaply. Well, I think everything will pump. Do you uh, think we're just like at the end of our line here at the end of the rope? Yeah, I think, I think because we've been living in such a deflationary world, they're doing everything they can to, you know, put liquidity into the system. And even in the great depression during the deflationary period, they printed money and they tried to give it to people and it didn't work because, even though they were putting all this liquidity into the system, people knew that prices were falling and it kind of changes the psychology, the mass psychology. They're like, Hey, you know, I want to, I want to save my money instead. I'm still not going to spend it because I don't know if things are going to go up or not. So I think that kind of has something to do with it. Also with the dollar shortage, like I said, we're going to have a liquidity crisis because a lot of people say, Hey, we're printing trillions of dollars, but 
you got to understand that, hey, a lot of countries owe a lot of dollars to the United States and they're trying to get dollars themselves and they can't even get access to it. So, so it's a shortage of dollars and that creates strength in the dollar until they're able to print out enough for everyone to kind of, to kind of meet the, de the global demand. And just to kind of put it into perspective, um, you know, who are U.S.'s two biggest rivals? You tell me. Uh, if, if I had to guess, it would be China and Russia. Exactly. And here's some fun facts about China and Russia. Um, Russia actually has the most hundred dollar, the most hundred dollar bills that circulate in the world are actually in Russia. They have the most amount of hundred dollar bills circulating. And in China, you know, when they were building the Silk Road, when they buy houses in other places, when they were doing these African infrastructure projects, when they're buying ports around the world, they're using dollars to do that. So that kind of puts it into perspective. Like the dollar is used a lot. Like people love the dollar. You give someone a dollar anywhere in the world, they're going to take it and they're not going to ask questions. Got it. So I, I'm just having a hard time bridging the gap between that factor statistic and the fact like that you know where what does that mean in the sense of a crash or you know the topics we're discussing today okay well um yeah i think i think long story short yeah where, i just want to circle it back in a little bit yeah yeah i i think what's really happening is they have to print money to try to prop up the market and it's not working there and we go we're headed towards a great depression you know Yes, yes, yes. So how does, I know we talked about it a little bit, but how do you see Bitcoin playing into this? Because a lot of people talked about the fact that, you know, as the dollar collapses, Bitcoin can come in or as any, I guess, you know, fiat currency collapses, the dollar can come or Bitcoin can come in and replace it. Uh, do you believe that that's something that could happen? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if you look at history of all fiat currencies, they've I mean, every single fiat currency has failed and it's ended with hyperinflation and it's ended with distrust in the higher powers and the hierarchy that really created the previous system. And I think that's where Bitcoin comes in because it's decentralized. It can't be inflated away. It has a limited supply. And I think with the mass adoption over time, as more people begin to adopt a Bitcoin, uh, we'll start to see the price stability as well. And, you know, um, I don't think we'll ever go back to a gold standard because gold limited the amount uh, it limited a country's ability to expand as a nation and economically create um you know the drivers needed to grow so you know that and it's also very hard to transfer you don't want to send boats full of gold to other countries every time you're trying to um, you know, you're doing like bartering, say you're buying gold from another country. You don't want to send gold every time. So Bitcoin kind of solves that because it's easily transferable and it's a third party. It's trusted. You don't really need anyone else to kind of verify everything. It allows people to do business very quickly, very efficiently. We're in a digital world. And I think Bitcoin best represents that digital money. Um, and I think like, you know, if even if the IMF was to the International Monetary Fund, uh, I forget what they stand for, but they have something called SDRs, which is basically a basket of currencies, the dollar, the euro, the pound, the yuan, the yen, and they have gold in it as well. Well, they could add Bitcoin into it as well. And 
if the IMF decides like, hey, we're going to add Bitcoin as part of the basket of currencies, let's just say it becomes adopted and people are really pushing for it, then that would increase the market cap of Bitcoin exponentially. Um, and, you know, like I said, the society that's built on skepticism, Bitcoin should have value. And can it store like a, can it serve as a store of wealth like gold? We're not really too sure. It depends on if we see that price stability. But I hypothesize that with the mass adoption and as more people come in, we should see the price stabilize a lot more. Yeah, with adoption, like you're saying, comes that kind of price stability. Um, But my concern is that, you know, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that Bitcoin seems to be pretty highly correlated with all of other markets, specifically the stock market. Uh, And it is a very new asset class and it's very risky. And I think in times of crisis, people move away from these risky assets. Uh, It's it's Um, very much what we saw. Like looking at this chart here, you can see those huge red candles. Uh, so what, what, what do you see in the near future? I would say, cause long-term we can speculate and say that, yes, it will get adopted. It will become the either future of currency, or it will become a store of value one or the other potentially. Uh, but what about in the more near term? Uh, what do yeah. you, what are you looking at? So, so in the near term, you know, as all those assets, like you pointed out, you made some great points that they sold off just like everything else. And Bitcoin doesn't really have a high market cap. Like gold is seven trillion, and gold was selling off as well. You know, yeah. Um, so, so Bitcoin is so volatile, and it's such a speculative as, uh, it's a, such a speculative asset as of now, and I think it will be a speculative asset for quite some time, until we begin to see that mass adoption. Which was why I had such high price predictions because I, I felt that you know given this issues we have in the monetary system if bitcoin can continue in a four-year trend then perhaps it will hit high prices as people begin to kind of ask themselves hey you know can can this serve as a um you know as part of our global payment system or not but like i was saying charles last time i remember we were talking about it and i was just so bullish at the time we were inside between these two black lines and I was like, hey, man, it's going to 50,000. There's nothing you can do. But, you know, we had a week where we kind of, we lost this channel. And that was the bearish sign for me to get out. So right around 78 to 75, I sold most of my Bitcoin and I left a little bit to short alts. And my whole logic was that this thing's probably going to go into a multi-year correction. I kind of drew it out. I mean, this isn't exactly what I think is going to happen. It won't exactly play out like this, but I think eventually we're going to go somewhere between 700 to 1500, unfortunately. Got it. Okay. So, so no plans for the near term for this to become the world reserve currency. Um, Yeah. Do you mind if we talk about traditional markets for a minute? Because I think a lot of people who are listening to this also want to hear about traditional markets do you think that we're going to continue to to see a decline yeah and i think we are and like you know um these channels sorry we 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 did talk about this whole episode being that today's days are kind of mirroring the great depression do you think it will like what i'm asking is do you think it'll play out in a similar way 
Yeah, I think it will. And, um, you know, here's the Dow Jones. Um, just kind of like what I was looking at. And this is kind of something you could use with Bitcoin as well, because we moved in a channel. I think we lost the channel. We're going to see a major sell off kind of like 2008. And I think now we've just lost this channel again. So I think we're setting up to start hitting, you know, this was the 1987 uh, FIB retracement. This is the 2008 FIB retracement. And then this is the 1987 low, um, or not the low, but um, this was the low for um, 2008. So I think we're going to see a massive correction in stock in the Dow, at least to 12,000, 15,000 minimum. Um, and I think with that deflation, I'm not too sure if it will be as severe as the Great Depression. Uh, it really depends on the, the monetary policies that they implement. But I can see it kind of losing this and then kind of starting a new trend and this could go on for several years until dollar um, until that dollar confidence is really lost. So I think we're going to sell off big time. We're going to have a huge correction. Um, I've been calling it for a while. I've been calling for it for a while. And I think then we can start a new trend and start going up again. Yeah, if you look at 2008, those sales look pretty good right now. I think everyone's yeah. pretty on edge at the moment thinking that we're going to see a yeah. further decline. I do just want my audience to know that, you know, while this TA is on the screen, I think that there are other very important factors playing into the market right now. Right. Uh, the right. global economy has kind of faltered and come to a grinding halt uh, with this coronavirus that is, yep. you know, going on. People aren't going out. Businesses aren't being stimulated. Uh, people are actually talking about a thousand dollar check being cut to every American. So it's pretty crazy times and it can't just be contributed to say this ta that we're looking at um but okay so we talked about the actually one thing i want to point out um that might be interesting to some people is um you know when Vera stearns and lehman brothers failed right you remember that yeah uh, during the financial crisis so it was actually right here at the bottom of this channel so when they lost the channel that's when they made the announcement that lehman and Vera stearns had failed so and I always find that pretty interesting. That's when that's when people really started freaking out. Shit started hitting the fan. That's when it hit the fan. Yep. Yeah, and, you and know, right now we're kind of there, you know. So I was gonna say there hasn't there hasn't been that much news lately on companies going crazy. I think I just recently saw that Boeing is asking for a bailout, um, but yeah. we, we haven't seen too many large financial oh, institutions Boeing's asking for a bailout huh yeah yeah just saw wow. something about it uh wow. I mean, it makes sense they uh they spent a ton of their money on stock buybacks and now the kind of entire economy has halted and people are not taking flights anywhere so like i can see them yeah. you know very much needing something like that but again we haven't really seen any we haven't large... heard that news yet yeah that that news we have, but the any large financial institutions we haven't really heard from yet. Yeah, we haven't. And kind of my theory is maybe we'll we'll have like a little bounce here unless we just keep selling off. But I think um, we might see a bounce here and maybe start moving towards this 200 week moving average, kind of like last time. And I would expect sometime over the next month or two, we'll I think we will get that news that some something is in deep trouble and we're yeah. gonna just that massive sell off. I think that's what's setting up here. Yeah, I, I think the most important thing is to kind of be wary, be paying attention to the news, understand what's going on in not only the U.S. market, but in the global financial markets. 
Uh, so you can kind of get ahead of this thing. Um, so we talked about a lot. I think the main takeaway was that there are we are seeing a lot of similarities, especially in the run-up, the 10 years prior to the Great Depression and a potential depression or recession coming soon. I don't know. I'm I'm not here to speculate. I just like no. I just like the the comparisons that you've brought up, which is why I really wanted to do this episode. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. but before we go, is there anything else that you would like my audience to know? Yeah, I would just say, you know, um, it's it's hard to really predict the future, and I'm not saying that I can. I I tend to have a very strong opinion with everything I say, and that's just kind of the way I was built, but there's also times where you have to admit you're wrong. It's hard to see the future. So it's, I think the the best advice I could give people is, you know, try to be as level-headed as you can. And if you agree with something so much, maybe the best thing to do is find that alternative opinion and try to convince yourself of the latter. And I think if you can find that middle ground there, you'll be able to see things a lot more clearly. That's a perfect way to end it. I just want to add my little two cents to this as well. I think in these times, people tend to freak out a little bit more than they need to, uh, which leads to irrational markets. Uh, this right. is you know, a show on cryptocurrencies and entrepreneurs, so I did want to talk about the markets and kind of relate it back. Uh, you know, Sometimes these huge sell-offs are a little bit irrational because people are freaking out uh, about other events in the world, which could be the case here. Uh, but to just try to keep a level head, take things one day at a time, but also look, you know, far enough out in the future that you're not getting caught up in the day to day. So I really appreciate you coming on. I thought that was a wonderful comparison that we are now seeing play out for a second time, potentially. Uh, so, again, thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing me on, even if it was twice, you know. Yeah, I'm hoping, I, to, I'm hoping I, to do this more, you know. I'm yeah. hoping we can talk again, you know. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see how this all kind of plays out, yeah. and we can do a follow up episode. Uh, again, yeah. thank you for taking the time because I, that first episode did get a little bit messed up, and I yeah, think no with worries. just this recent news and this recent sell off, I think it even makes for a more interesting conversation. So, the timing yeah. is pretty perfect. Yes. It is, man. It's it's a crazy world we live in. That's what I like to say. So. Right. All right. Again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.